What's up? Welcome back. I'm Adam Stachowiak, and you are listening to Founders Talk. On this show, I share one-on-one conversations I have with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, the lessons learned, and what it takes to build and run their business. Today, I'm joined by Kurt Mackey, the founder and CEO of Fly. Kurt and I talk about his journey as an entrepreneur, what it's like to fundraise, getting into Y Combinator twice, and how they've iterated on the Fly platform since 2017 to get to where they are right now, which is putting full stack apps and databases close to users. Of course, big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at LaunchDarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Render, the zero DevOps cloud that empowers you to ship faster than your competitors. Here's Anurag Goel, CEO of Render, sharing why developers choose Render over Heroku and how they're innovating much faster. A lot of Render customers come to us from Heroku and they tell us Render is what Heroku could have been. I think it's because we offer a more streamlined approach to hosting modern cloud applications at a significantly better price point. Applications on Render heal themselves and scale automatically, giving developers the features and flexibility of something like Kubernetes, but without any of the complexity. We're always working to bring the latest industry advances to our platform. So your applications can leverage the state of the art in the cloud without you having to do or learn anything. All right, learn more about how Render compares to Heroku at render.com compare or email changelog at render.com for a personal intro and to ask questions about the Render platform. Again, that's render.com compare or email changelog at render.com. Thanks for joining me. Welcome to Founders Talk. I'm a big fan of what you've been doing. Uh, very impressed with what you've done over the years, MoHQ to Compose to acquisition with IBM, and now really innovating in the cloud in a space that, from what I understand, like not many people are trying to put apps everywhere and databases everywhere. And you've really been in this innovation position, from what I can tell, your entire career. How'd you have you always been a bleeding edge sort of, you know, on the edge of your seat kind of person? What, how did you do that? How do you, how do you get there? Hey, thanks for having me. But also that's a, that is an interesting question. It's hard to identify myself as innovative. Like it's one of those things that seems like calling yourself humble. It's <laughs> like, I can notice it in other people, but uh, I'm not sure I would, ever would have framed it that way. Well, I think even databases in the cloud, even like I can recall back when we, we actually had Compose as a sponsor Yep. post IBM acquisition. And I think even then, and I'm going to show, I suppose some of my uh, naivete is that I was like databases in the cloud. I mean, does that make sense? Manage databases, <laughs> right? Who's going to trust that? Who wants to shell out or API out to their databases? That makes sense. Yeah. Obviously in retrospect, it does. So, I mean, there you go. That's interesting. I think one of the things that I am intimately aware of that's maybe not obvious from the outside is I'm not sure these are like fully formed ideas that I produce as much as, as particularly databases were like entirely not my idea until I saw it. It was like, obviously this is a good way to do things and started working on it um, with the folks who really came up with that particular idea. Maybe the one personality quirk I have that uh, I'm maybe more committed to than other people is I get really irritated when it seems like things are 
like broadly wrong. Like, so when, particularly when I've started building software, it really drives me batty. When I, I hit this feeling that is like, what's there doesn't work the way it should. Yeah. And so most of the places I've worked, well, Hey, that's led me astray. Uh, frequently, I spent a lot of time on on relatively arbitrary, stupid stuff that had no no value to anyone other than my own personal. Like, ah, yes, now it's the way I want it to be. No one sees the rabbit holes you chased down that that ended nowhere, right? Like, yeah. they all see the successes, not the failures, really. Yeah, that's what I like about this show too. Is we kind of show some of those things. So feel free to bring those out as it as it makes sense. But I think so many people look at somebody successful, someone like you, even is that they only see the filter, so to speak, right. or what the press covers or what you share on your blog or the things that sort of like hit critical mass. They don't see all the endpoints that went nowhere, right. you know? So I love this kind of conversation to bring that kind of stuff out. Yeah. I think one thing I've been really fortunate about is I've mostly been working in places where I could kind of go off on a tangent. One of my favorite things I've ever worked on is Ars Technica, the kind of the tech magazine that's now owned by Condé Nast. I started working with them in college and I wanted to write code. I didn't particularly want to write words. Um, I did write words occasionally. Notably, I wrote a review of Firefox when they introduced tabs and the review was like tabs in a browser is stupid. Why would anyone want that? <laughs> so clearly not all of your, I was incorrect. I think. Yeah. Yes. I mean, tabs have lived to live on I mean, They've stayed. Yes. I, I feel like maybe I lost that that argument. <laughs> and if you look at my browser now, there's 47 tabs. So it's, it's which like, is funny because I can remember like the tabs coming out with Firefox back in the days and thinking like, yes, <laughs> absolutely, 100 percent. Give me more. Let me tab. Yeah, I think I was a big old operating system nerd at the time. And so like I was using BOS. If you remember BOS, I don't know if you've ever even heard of it. Nope. It was invented by one of the, a guy named Jean-Louis Gasset, um, who worked on Macintosh back like long before it was what we have now. One of the things Microsoft had done that was interesting then was made some interesting window management choices and you had your taskbar and you almost had like a global tab thing. And I was like, cool, the operating system should do good. In hindsight, what works better, it seems like, is the operating system getting out of the way and the browser being able to do its own tabs. But anyway, that's why I was, would rather write code than... Um, I see. But you can probably still find that article, but that was one of the notable things that I was just wildly wrong about, which has made me sort of temper how loud I am about opinions about how things should be. The cool thing there was I kind of had full control over the whole technical stack that Ars Technica was published on. So I got to like build interesting things for both uh, publishing and the forums because the forums were actually a very big part of that site and still still are. One of the things that I did that I probably shouldn't have was built a custom CMS for them uh, using F Sharp and .NET, mm. which were F Sharp was a fringy language. .NET was like not Linux, right? It was like a weird way to run software even back in 2004. It's funny, I've been tempted to build a CMS multiple times and it's not a thing I should be building. My ideas of how, how content should be published are probably very specific to me and not an interesting thing for most people. Definitely not something people are going to give me money for. Yeah. So ours now runs on WordPress. Like ever, like the rest of the the rest of the planet, right? <laughs> and my CMS is like I don't even know if the code exists anywhere, but I, I prefer it just be gone for good. I'm sure there's something you learn though, right? I mean, I'm sure there's something the business learned. That's even early days. Like WordPress probably wasn't as prevalent back in those days. It was early days for WordPress. Yep. Early days in their ability to conquer the publishing world, or at least be a dominating player in the space. So I mean. I can't blame you for trying to go down your own route because, I mean, that could have been very fruitful. Right. 
like even now, I'm sure with Fly and, you know, in the path of MongoHQ, you know, Turn Compose, that you chased directions that you thought would be dead ends that ended up being very fruitful. Yes, that's fair. In hindsight, you may say, oh, that CMS sucked and I really wish it died. But, you know, it could have been the next WordPress. Had it been what it needed to be, I suppose, beyond what WordPress was. We did one really interesting thing, though, is after my... um half-ass CMS. We moved to movable type. So I don't know if you remember movable type. I do, yeah. Movable type's interesting because it was a static site generator before. Was that pre or post acquisition? Weren't they acquired and then it got different? I remember movable type being, you know, obviously web hosted, less installed. Right. And it would be static files similar to like, I suppose where we're at now full circle. Yep. With a lot of promise around static site generation. Yep. And it would like, you know, compile your site in the browser and then it was ready for your users and all that good stuff. We had, I think we ran an open source version. The static site thing is super interesting to me watching static site generators now because um, we outgrew it. Obviously a place like ours will outgrow that. Yeah, especially in those days with that technology, it was just, yeah, it wasn't like it was today. No, one hack there that we did that actually is fits sort of the fly mission now is we ended up rather than generating static files for articles, what we did was we generated PHP files that were actually static code, basically. So it wasn't just a CDN serving an HTML file. And that what that let us do is it, it let us do things like um, update all the listings. Like you'll have the article and you'll have like all the re- related stuff next to it. Mm-hmm. And it let us insert things in like the category pages without having to rebuild anything. And so um, one of the variants of that used MongoDB and we ran... MongoDB replicas next to the app servers that were doing the kind of the published PHP files so that PHP could go back and talk to MongoDB to do things like search. I mean, now talking about this, I never really clicked with me before. We just wrote a blog post on Fly about running Postgres read replicas everywhere. That's exactly the same architecture. It's just useful for more people than just me. So it's literally like 16 years later, it became a feature that we shipped for a company that I hadn't even thought about at the time. So that was sort of interesting. Yeah. You know, what's even interesting, too, is is you mentioned, you said, was it F-Sharp? What was the architecture for the CMS? F-Sharp and .NET. I think it's safe to say WordPress, obviously, is good software, but it's not, it hasn't been successful only because it's been good code. Right. Right. So, like, even if your code was amazing, you know, in comparison to, say, WordPress, and, you know, now that Ars Technica probably use or does use WordPress, the difference between your code and that code wasn't necessarily just simply good or bad code. It was... A product direction, it was a person behind it. Matt Mullenweg has been very influential in that space, very committed to a certain community focus. So, you know, sometimes good code isn't just good enough. You know, like it's it requires more than just simply the best code. Right. I'm prone to kind of trying to build the perfect thing with the perfect language and the perfect computer science-y, you know, the most pure possible thing, which is not, probably not the best way to do things. I've been lucky, I think, because I've always really appreciated developers who just build things and don't worry about it. They just ship stuff and they make it work for people and they solve their problems. And I think one of the reasons I'm lucky is now we're on, I'm, I'm on company number two that's literally targeting those people as customers. And building tools for like productive developers is one of the most fun things I can imagine at this point. Yeah. It's really interesting to watch people go off with whatever you've built and make a living or some money or, or like feed a passion with it. It's, it's incredibly rewarding. And I think like tech startups in general, they don't always really value the 
kind of like I'd call them like blue collar devs. It's it's like the worst word ever, but they don't really value the blue collar developers in the way that I think they should because it's again they're all kind of after the perfection like I was and the perfect architecture and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I don't know why I like them so much, but I always have, and I think I've always sort of wanted to be one of the blue collar devs. I've always felt like it's sort of a flaw that I like making things like fun and glitzy and perfect. Anyway. A little bit of a tangent there, but it's describe a, a blue collar worker. What are some attributes that describe a, a blue collar worker or a blue collar dev? Yeah, a blue collar developer. What's some attributes for that kind of developer? I tend to think of these people as like they're not on Twitter because they don't care and don't have time for that. And they're probably building. There's an interesting community of these that are like Shopify developers. And what they're doing is they're building tools so they can make money. And it's not like sexy what they're doing. And they don't care about that. It's like they they see it kind of a small commercial need and they're doing something to scratch that itch. Right. They're swinging the hammer. Yeah. They're getting the beer on the way home and they're hanging out with the kids. Yeah. They're not out there on Twitter saying, this is what I built today. Right. Praise it, praise it, like it, like it. Yeah. You know, fork it, whatever, whatever you might be doing as part of like promoting the code you write. They're just simply writing the code, doing the thing, getting the commercial value, increasing the user's appreciation of it, et cetera, and going home. Yeah. That's exactly it. And there's a lot of them still writing PHP because that's how they can get things done. And PHP is an incredibly mm -hmm. productive language, particularly with Laravel now. Yeah. It's like a it's a place to build a lot of really interesting stuff. If you extend that too, what's fascinating is if you watch like Silicon Valley funded startups, I'm gonna get myself in trouble for this, but particularly like Jamstack adjacent. The whole Jamstack idea is what I'd call it is like architecture perfection, right? Like Jamstack sounds like architecture perfection to me. And it makes a ton of sense for a lot of companies, but What's happened with companies is they've they've like hoovered up all the investment money in the Jamstack world. And in some ways they've left all of the blue collar devs behind and the blue collar devs are getting their needs. They're kind of their itches scratched by people you wouldn't think like Shopify is a really good example of this. WordPress is a really good example of this. And it's actually super interesting to me if you'd like break down all the devs in the world to think about how few of them even understand the Jamstack architecture. And how many of them are actually shipping real useful stuff for either the companies they work for or or their own particular purposes. Yeah. In some ways, we've been lucky that I think this because Fly, like we can target kind of the blue collar devs and it's working, right? They don't have a lot of infrastructure built for them. And what we're building actually works pretty well for really boring applications. And it gives us a lot of, I think, ability to build something that I think is not perfect yet, but is vastly better than the tooling that a lot of them are used to using. What do you know about... Uh what's happening on Shopify in terms of like development. Cause we have merch.changelaw.com. It is our Shopify store and we use a very simple system. We have, we use their theme kit, which is super cool. Shopify's theme kit is super cool tech. I mean, just to get a store up and yeah. deliver it via the API with, uh, you know, a, a single command. But like beyond that, what do you know about what's happening on Shopify in terms of like, maybe even how you relate that back to how you're solving you know, productivity issues for developers on fly. Yeah, they released some stuff. They announced some stuff. I think it was last week. Uh, they had like a developer conference. And one of the things they're doing is they're they're going hard at this headless commerce stuff where the idea is they're all, they're almost like the Stripe, but for stores now is kind of what they're positioning themselves as. It's almost like if I'm online and I'm at a store and it's not, and I go to the checkout process, I'm like, oh, this is a Shopify checkout process. Okay, I'm safe. You know, the store's great and I'm I'm happy, but like when I get there, I feel like, okay, I can for sure easily check out with Apple Pay or all the pays because they just easily integrate it and make it so easy for retailers or e-tailers to just deliver a store that's great. 
Yes. So I almost like trust that store more by choosing Shopify as a consumer. Right. I also feel good about it because it's not Amazon when I'm buying from those places. Yeah. It's like, a, oh, cool. It's a, this is a mom and pop probably is sort of what it feels like. I think what they're doing is opening up kind of more of their stack to be consumed by developers instead. So you kind of did the the theme stuff for your store. But I think what, what you'd be able to do with their new things is go even deeper. And what you do is you ship your own store that kind of hooks into all their plumbing and maybe dumps to them for the checkout process. But in terms of like, I don't know, for what you're doing, like maybe you start listing your products next to the um, to the podcast, for example, on the, on, right. the, on the listing. You kind of e- integrate it way more deeply into your particular application. In that case, it'd be our Elixir app could call out to their API and pull back, you know, our store ID and yeah. from a collection or something like that within Shopify. Yep, exactly. And so they're, they're really going hard at that, I believe. And as far as I can tell, so I've been paying a lot of attention to developer communities because we need to target developer communities and, and there's the obvious ones like Rails and then there's the non-obvious ones like Shopify. But like, I feel like they have 50 to 100,000 developers so many active on the platform. They're a behemoth. I mean, they have, they've IPO'd. So, I mean, that doesn't just say one thing, but they've definitely killed it. I can remember Tobias, I think his last name, do you say Lutke? Is that what you? Toby, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can remember when he was just a developer in the Ruby community, you know? Yeah. And like, he's still just a developer in the Ruby community too, but he's also that same developer who led a company that IPO'd and Shopify is a big deal. So I'm very happy for what he has done both in his career and for the world at large. Yeah. He's one of the public CEOs, company CEOs who shipped side projects on fly. We saw his name fly through one time. We're like, wow, that's really cool. He's still deploying kind of whatever little projects that he's doing to probably keep himself sane. That's why I write code. He's like, I need a break from people and I'm going to go into this more deterministic computer thing. Yeah. But, but it's very cool that he's still building stuff too. I think it's part of why maybe their developer story is working is kind of if you imagine a, a public company that's doing e-commerce that has kind of a, a functional developer as the CEO, you would think they'd have a pretty good developer platform if that became important for them. You know, I think that's good for representation, too. And I, I think as part of what we do here at Changelog, I think a lot about the full life cycle of a developer. We're not just simply targeting, in quotes, senior engineers or, you know, novices or beginners like we don't have a particular developer target in terms of like who we speak to we just sort sort of like talk about what we think is important but one thing we see often is uh is that everyone's welcome no matter where you're at on your hacker path you know this is a place you can call home now we may not have absolute absolute beginner content every single day but we want everyone to feel welcomed and i think what a ceo who codes like toby might or does is representation to anybody out there who's like, I've got an idea. I'm nowhere today. I'm 20. I'm 15. I'm yep. 30. I'm 50 even, you know, like whatever age you are, like I'm here and I'm, I don't have the success in this tech world, but I want to do this thing or I have this idea. You could be CEO, but you could still also code as well. But that there's that's an opportunity. It's possible. It is. You know, I think that's what's cool about that. And it's always been the promise of the internet is like, you don't have to ask permission to build things. Like it's not, nobody's going to stop you. Right. I think we have a long way to go to get more Tobies out there that, you know, look different. Right. But in general, like nobody's stopping anyone from building something interesting and getting it shipped. We have a long way to go to get investment to a good group of people because right now, like you kind of have a prototype that can raise money from the traditional investors. Yeah. But still, like it's not even the only path to making making a successful or unsuccessful product. <laughs> Earmark that investment part because I want to talk about that with you at some point. But I would say that I would think of you as like a Toby. You're CEO. You're still slinging code. Maybe like baby Toby. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, okay. So let's let's definitely say Fly hasn't IPO'd yet, but you ha- you've had an exit. 
right? Yep. You've been acquired by Big Blue. I, I mean, IBM is one of the oldest tech companies in our ecosystem, right? I mean, they've been there forever. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. Yeah. I would compare you to Toby for sure. Well, that's flattering. <laughs> uh, it's funny. I think that it, it's easy to, it's uh, hard to recognize maybe status or privilege. You know, again, like not identifying innovation, right? Like it's like you're always aware of the people who are doing better at X than you are. Mm-hmm. IBM's an interesting problem because they, um, anyway, I could talk about IBM for way longer than we have if anyone actually cares about IBM these days, which I think is probably not the case. I think they're winning in their own spaces, but I think maybe a good dovetail to that might be potentially what you say about yourself in your Twitter bio. You say, I do random, sometimes useful things with computers <laughs> and fire, which I don't understand the and fire. I suppose that's barbecue reference, which I'd love to talk to you about that if that's the case. Barbecue and fireworks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fireworks. Yeah. Firecracker, fireworks, literal fireworks. Yes. You know, I do think that you, maybe it's like you said, it's hard to recognize so let me tell you, I think you're cool. I think what you've done is cool. I would definitely say that you're representing the developer as a CEO, still leading, still innovating, even in the CEO role. Not the CEOs are limited. Right. I think too often, that's why I love this, this conversation here on Founders Talks, because we talk to the founders, CEOs, and makers, right? Which I think that all those could be CEOs. Not all founders are CEOs. Not all makers are CEOs either. But too often do we think CEOs a limited role. Right. Right. And I think it doesn't have to be. And so often the struggle that you have as a CEO is very different than any other role because very often you're so different in the organizational chart. Even if you don't have one, the problems you have as CEO are way different than an IC, for example, an individual contributor, because you've got funding thoughts, you've got, you know, bills to pay, you've got runway to consider, and you've got to, in your role, innovate and think about the future of where this platform should go version one versus version two. I know you've had a version one of the platform. You've got all these things to juggle where that person has such a limited concern scope. Right. Whereas a CEO can be so much and can be very limited in terms of what they do for an organization and how they lead, or they can do coding every day and shipping something arbitrarily on fly (laughs) for fun because Toby did that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I joke that if I wrote as much code as I want, the company would fail because it's not exactly the thing I should be doing at all times. But um, I actually one of that's one of the things I learned. I think so when we initially when I stopped working on Ars Technica and then decided to do Y Combinator in two thousand eleven, one of the things I really wanted to do was to learn about building a particularly like an investment funded startup company and like what that process is like and and what you go through. Because I, I've never been good at school, but I've always liked the idea of like an MBA. I've liked the, one of my favorite classes when I did do college and I did actually get my bachelor's degree finally, uh, just in case my mom's listening. She's proud of that <laughs> more than anything I've done, I think, Yay. is, um, but I actually really, I really liked the finance class more than anything. It was, just, it was super interesting and not something that I would be inclined to like, but the idea of like how companies choose to spend money and, and debt and equity financing and all that was really interesting. And so um, why Combinator was interesting in 2011, I think it probably still is, is it's like it's like a way to maybe learn some of this stuff without having to go to school, <laughs> kind of do it instead of learning it. And um, it's been fun to see and fun to learn and also like mildly distressing at times to really find out how stuff works. Yeah. It's that whole how sausage is made thing. I kind of love that 
even broader than the CEO, like the founder job at startups is almost like a choose your own adventure thing. And it took me a while to learn that, that like as the company grows, one of the things that you can really take advantage of is you can start offloading stuff that you, it's a real chore, it's a real grind, and actually really focus on the things that are incredibly interesting to you. So there's other, uh, the CEO of New Relic, Lucerne, I think he was like the OG founder, coder, CEO guy, like the guy that um, maintained the CEO job and managed to offload a lot of what was happening to the COO position. And I think prior to him, like investors were like, oh, no, developer guy is not going to be a CEO. That's just they don't have the right DNA for this. But learning all this over time has been really fascinating. It took me a long time to learn how to actually choose your own adventure mm-hmm. in the context of a startup. And more importantly, it took me a long time to learn that like part of my job is helping other people choose their own adventure. So like even the um, we're going from seven people now, we're going to be hiring pretty quickly. So that we have this like level up stage between seven and 30 where the people who right now have been focused primarily on development on fly have had to do a lot of other stuff along the way. And helping those people like offload those things and make the right hires to ease their life and have them focus on what they find really interesting and is probably way more valuable for us for them to be spending time on. Yeah. It's like part of the job I didn't recognize as being part of the job until basically I did it wrong. There's a lot of I did these things wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and on take two, I can try to do them differently. And that's okay. That's where learning comes from, right? Yes. The best learnings come from failure. As you'd mentioned, the MBA, I think that that's in comparison to say Y Combinator. I think you can learn by learning and you can learn by doing, obviously, right? But if you learn by learning, you eventually have to learn by doing too, because what you learn, you have to put into practice and then actually do it. Right. Right. So let's say you go to school, you don't always learn by doing, you sort of learn by learning. You learn by sort of lecturing or reading. You may observe, but you're not really doing in most of those cases, not every single case. Right. And I think eventually you learn by doing, and that's what Y Combinator does. It lets you be assigned. I mean, I'm not sure of all the processes, but assuming based on past conversations and also what I know about the process of selections and whatnot for Y Combinator, but you have people that are mentors to you, et cetera, that are not in your company, but are advising you based on the whole Y Combinator process. You got people that are like feeding into you and in your school essentially is learning from them. And then you go that same day or that very moment in tandem with the conversation by doing too. Yes. So it's like the best proving ground for, it's like microwaving too. Like you condense, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like an eight week process, right? 10 week process. It's something like that. I'm pretty sure Yep. in terms of its, its uh, length. So it's compressed and you've got the learn by doing and the learn by learning all in one to sort of like speed round you to the next level of a founder and then, you know, jettison off to the company and being a CEO in the long term. you know, you've got that process there that's sort of compressed in that time zone. It is. It's, they do a really good job there. And so we did Y Combinator again and I felt like I knew everything and it was still helpful to get their advice and get their kind of harsh feedback sometimes. One interesting thing about the partners there is they see hundreds of companies do things and there are patterns to how these companies do things. And in many cases, they're like, able to give people confidence to do something that that they're afraid they can't justify to like the, the world at large. I think a lot of startups is like kind of having just a ridiculous amount of maybe confidence isn't the word. Maybe like drink your own Kool-Aid, right? You have to really be committed to doing something that might look odd to a lot of people because if it was obviously valuable, somebody else already would have done this. I think the other interesting thing about like YC versus an MBA is you get a really concentrated experience what I would call like the more interesting things about running a company, but you don't necessarily get when we went to IBM, I realized how much I didn't know about how big organizations operate. And a lot of this is like, I don't 
care. I think it's unhealthy and it's not a thing that I would necessarily want to spend time learning. But I think that the, the school would have been helpful for navigating like giant corporate structures and understanding procurement and how how like the politics of an international organization work, which is way far removed from building an interesting product and selling yeah, it to people. Totally. It's like a distilled MBA on the things that I think are more interesting than, than I think what most businesses are kind of spending all day on. Up next, Kurt and I talk about the application and selection process of Y Combinator. He shares what it takes to get accepted and what to expect once you're in. Stick around. This episode of Founders Talk is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 is a for developers by developers identity platform built for the cloud era. They secure billions of logins every year. Identity is the front door of every user interaction and the login experience can make or break a user's first impression. Identity and authentication is never a set it and forget it thing. That means when teams decide to roll their own, they are taking on the full burden of constantly evolving industry standards, customer expectations, and data breach tactics, and they often don't have the time, expertise, or resources to meet those needs. This takes away from critical time needed to innovate and to improve their core product. Auth0 has solved this problem for every developer to give teams their time back and to make applications more secure. With Auth0 security, compliance, and industry standards, they're always up to date. Developers are free to provide the login options their users want with the security their application demands. Make login Auth0's problem not yours. Learn more at Auth0.com. Again, Auth0.com. How do you get to Y Combinator status? Like uh, to, to sort of like represent for those out there listening that might be like, okay, Kurt, cool. Y Combinator versus MBA, you know, compress it, condense it, whatever. How do you get to that place? Is there a, do you run your company for a little bit and then you apply? Do you have the idea and then you apply? Like, how do you get to the application? And then, you know, maybe the luck of the draw to get accepted. I think I was rejected three times before they accepted me. Part of it was they really like founding teams. Yeah, I don't know, it's it's hard because it's still, it's probably the most fair selection process anywhere for any kind of investment. And it's still very, I guess, like fixated on like a certain kind of people. And I think they're trying to improve that. The nice thing about their application process is what they, I think they're really looking for. And I think the thing that got us in is I mentioned earlier that I fixated on like building technical perfection and didn't focus a lot on how that would actually be kind of deployed to the world or how it'd be, how it'd be useful or valuable. And when I finally got in, it's because I'd gotten a little bit better and found a co-founder that was also good at this. Uh, we, we were like, all right, cool. We can build this thing. We can look ahead and see how this might be incredibly valuable to the world in the future. It was a little bit of telling the story to not me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, in fact, that's one of the the most useful things about fundraising I've discovered is it's almost like a chance for me to stop working on the things that I'm focusing on every day, which are very small and targeted and will matter within three days and think a lot harder about where this could actually go and where this is going and whether we're on the right track for this. So I think the best way to get into Y Combinator is probably 
and this is going to maybe sound backwards, I would probably build something interesting that I thought I could sell or get people to use very quickly. And then I'd figure out how to make it big. And it's not so much that you have to start with the big. So like with Fly, with this company, I actually started with sort of the big idea. And then it took three years to find the small one that would get us going in that direction. If you can build something interesting that scratches a small itch for people that are really need it, it's relatively easy to expand that into how this could become a giant thing down the road. And I think the really cool thing about Y Combinator is you don't, you're not like committed to making it giant. You don't ever have to get out of that small business mode if you don't want to. But actually having that thought process is, is probably pretty helpful. I think the more specific YC advice is once you kind of have this idea and a proto, I wouldn't go to YC without a prototype. I think going with an idea is probably, even if you get accepted, probably fraught with risk because mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of time to go from there to actually trying to get users. What's the time from, is it eight weeks or is it 12 weeks or what's the time frame? I want to say it's about 10 weeks and then fundraising stuff happens. The goal of there is to come out with enough progress to raise money from kind of seed round investors, which are frequently like funds or or even like successful founders who just write small checks into stuff they think is interesting. The problem is, is like you can't build a lot in 10 weeks. You can build a very small version of something. I think it's better to probably go to Y Combinator with a pretty strong MVP maybe than, than it is to just show up and try and do that from scratch. So you did this with MongoHQ. Was it Compose yet or was it just MongoHQ then? So the funny story there, and I learned this happens relatively frequently, is I went with a, I and a different co-founder went with a company that called NowSpots. Um, and what we were doing is we were doing ad tech and that company became perfect audience. But one of the things I learned at Y Combinator is there's a lot of like founder switching. <laughs> so I met the Compose guys or MongoHQ guys at the time and joined their company. Interesting. Towards the end of YC, it was like ad tech wasn't the right thing for me to be working on. Brad, my original co-founder at uh, NowSpot became perfect audience and he sold that several years ago. He's now a partner at Y Combinator. So we've kept in touch a little bit. He invested in Fly, but it was, uh, YC was a cool place to go to find another company to work on. If Even if it didn't work, it's like a really good group of people to be involved with. And then when we went with Fly, we were actually older and had a, we had, kind of the bones of what we've shipped, what we sell now were built. And it was like, this is the thing we want to launch this to devs. It's ready to be used. Like now we just need to sort of figure out how to get people to use it, which worked out very, very well. So when MongoHQ went to Y Combinator, it was even more mature than I think most YC companies were because it, there was a product that was getting sold. People were buying it. You know, it was a, it was a reasonably successful, very small thing, I think. And then became obvious how to how to like tell the story of how to turn this big yc likes seeing 10 people that really love something and then a story for how to get a million people to kind of repeat this process would you say that it's a let's say you had a business in place for five years 10 years that's still small because like let's just say you just naturally kept it small you never pursued vc funding you just sort of kept your thing small but there's such a big opportunity both technically and just in other ways too but would you say that's still a safe thing to pitch to Y Combinator? I mean, are there no bounds, basically? I don't think there's time-based bounds. I think there's two kinds of companies that have been around for four or five years. So we went to Y Combinator when we were three years old for Fly. What we were, we were three years old and we tried two things that were wrong. For The purpose of Fly at the beginning was we were going to, um, basically, we felt like CDN, so um, Fastly and Akamai and Cloudflare at the time, were kind of crap for developers. 
They didn't really solve the. Be careful. When I mentioned Fastly is a sponsor, you can't see that stuff. <laughs> I'm, just kidding, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Around. I hope they don't listen to this. <laughs> but they are a partner. They probably listen to it. That's okay. I'm just kidding. Around. Yeah. I'm just joking. Um, I mentioned earlier, it really irritates me when things don't seem like they work the way they should. And what always seemed like it didn't work the way they should to me, and this came from Ars Technica, was I'm building an app. There's also a CDN out there. I should be able to kind of use all of the CDN plumbing to enhance my application. So our theory was like if you build a CDN that's, that developers really love, that they pick up as they're building an application instead of just trying to bolt on later and add another layer, it'd be pretty valuable. And so we kind of kept that premise the whole time, but we tried two or three different things beforehand that just weren't doing kind of what we wanted. And when we had this sort of epiphany that maybe part of the problem is that a lot of applications shouldn't need a CDN. Like if you build the right infrastructure, maybe you can run applications and not be forced to put a CDN in front of them. That's when we were like, all right, cool, this could actually get big. We're seeing like the early signs, right? We got people, mm -hmm. we had the 10 really passionate users at that point of something that just barely worked. <laughs> but we were three years old and still trying to kind of find our path. If we'd been, I think there's like businesses that you've been running for, for several years that it's kind of like you're chipping away at the same thing without kind of making a big shift. I think maybe it's the word pivot, but not exactly. I think a lot of times pivots are like throw out the idea and go build chat or something. I'm thinking more like add a bigger gas tank. You know, like I've, yeah. by default, Ford gave me a 15-gallon gas tank. I'd love to have a secondary 35-gallon gas tank. <laughs> or a giant battery. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, exactly. So I'm speaking in obviously fossil fuel terms. Yes. So Or a giant battery. Yeah. Whatever it is, like give me the additional resources because I think as any sort of like Indie business, I would say, because like if you're a non-venture capital, non-funded business, you're indie, right? You're independently owned. That's what indie is. Yeah. So if you're in that space and like you said, chipping away, and I think that's exactly what it is. If you're chipping away at the same idea, maybe you're making progress, but maybe you're not making enough progress because you can see the vision. Right. Right. You, you said before, solve enough of the problem to see a bigger vision. And I think if you can see a bigger vision and that bigger vision requires more resources. Right. And it, it's going to take you a while to bootstrap to those resources. Venture capital or Y Combinator is is an acceleration process. And there are a lot of really interesting companies that worked for a long time before raising money. And I think the answer, maybe the broad answer here is like, if you can imagine pouring money into your company and making it grow quickly, it's a good time to start thinking about investment. I think a lot of people are prone to, if I could just hire five more developers, I'd ship more features and then we'd finally crack this nut of building something valuable, which I think is a bit of a fallacy. Mm -hmm. I think that in general, the reason for ra raising funding is to, for the class of companies I work on, if you're building a rocket company, you need a ton of money to literally get the thing off the ground. Yeah. But for most software, for like developers, the people I talk to most of the time, Almost everything they're building can be done very small and cheaply, especially now, right? It's totally different than it was 15 years ago. And the time for them to raise money is not so you can hire a second developer to ship more features because like there's the feature fallacy that I think hugely tempting. It's always tempting to want to add little things here and there to make your product better. The time is when you can imagine taking a bunch of money and doing three things at a time to make the company grow faster while you're kind of be building the same features at the same pace. I think it's a really hard choice, and I think that might be where Y Combinator isn't the best at selecting. It's really hard to look at a company that's been alive for five years and imagine that it's suddenly going to get big in year six if you put the right amount of money into it. 
One of the interesting things you see is like Atlassian did this and then Calendly now, the Calendly story I love. I don't know if I've talked to you about this before, but behind the scenes, we've talked about it. But to, yeah, we haven't gone to detail. So please feel free. So the Calendly CEO, whose name was Tope or Tope, I've only ever read it. I don't know how to pronounce it. I should have looked before I started talking out loud about this. But he basically wasn't able to raise money when he was working on Calendly. Because of like immigration reasons, right? Or something like that or nationalization reasons? I don't know the precise reason. I do firmly believe that, that traditional venture capital investors have a profile of people they invest in and he did not match that profile. And so like we could get way off in the weeds here. But in general, he was not able to raise money for Calumly. I think immigration might have been a component. I think he's from Atlanta. I think he's building a company in Atlanta. So it was in Silicon Valley. Not connected to anyone in Silicon Valley. Didn't match to like chiseled white guy physique that investors really seem to seek out even still. Right. And what he did is he built Calumly and made this really valuable service that I've been using for a long time. Me too. And then his first round of funding was like hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was like, it's a little ridiculous that he had to kind of prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's building an insanely valuable company to raise money. But he was able to just keep building this thing over time. And it finally worked. And then like Atlassian also did that. Atlassian didn't raise money until they were like 12 years old. I think those companies are super interesting what happened is those people built really successful companies and then thought, hey, I can strap the gas tank onto it. They didn't build like a thing that wasn't working yet and spend five years on it. They built a thing that was working. Right. And they could add the fuel or the battery to the rocket, basically. And, and you know, with your experience with Wacomir, having gone through it once, would you say that you built Fly knowing you would eventually go to Wacomir or did you build Fly thinking maybe? I imagine some will go and understand Prior to, yeah. they'll know what Y Combinator is, what the opportunities are, and they'll begin to build and get a certain threshold through it to say, okay, we're ready now. Yep. The plan was always to go to Y Combinator and get selected and go through that process and strap on the gas tank and resources and mentorship, et cetera, et cetera. And also the alum, the alum status of being a Y Combinator company is a big deal. Right. right. So that gives you a lot of new opportunity that was not there before because you sort of been stamped by the VC God, so to speak. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's such a prestigious name. Really, it is. And they've done such a great job over the years. Sure, there's been probably a thousand one flaws, but still all amazing things have come out of Y Combinator. I've only ever heard great things from every founder I've ever talked to through that process. Sure, there's probably some blemishes which you can talk to or scars or bloody knuckles or, <laughs> through, the way, yeah. through, the, through the process. But for the most part, you see success and you've yeah. come up successful because of the experience of it. The plan with fly was always to make it very big if possible. And for what we're doing, like you need to raise money to try and make what we're doing big. We're building software, but we're basically building servers in a whole bunch of cities too. It's just an expensive thing to do. And then the, the second part of that is we're also getting developers to use the product, which is a good way to make money, but it could take three years before like you get critical mass of developers on it and then actually paying any reasonable amount of money. And so the plan with Fly was always, hey, make this as big as possible because I still, in some ways I still wanna learn how startups work. I think we sold Compose at a time when I felt like we were 30% of the way there. There was a lot more to figure out. One of the things we never did at Compose was learn how to go from selling to developers to like getting big customers, which I think is a something interesting, something that I'd like to see happen yeah. and make work. When you say sell to developers, do you mean, you kind of mean like individual developers, like indies building their apps? Or do you mean like devs within a company that have, they're sort of one of many, so to speak, inside that larger organization? 
basically developers with a credit card is a pretty good description. Twilio um, always talked about this, how like developers act like consumers, but they have a budget behind them sometimes or a lot of the time. Yeah. And so when you build things for individual devs or people side projects, they tend to actually be things that you can get devs within large companies to use as well yeah. uh, with the right amount of work. But it takes a tremendous amount of trust for those large companies to start putting infrastructure on top of someone like us or even Compose. Right. It's that trust factor that you're sort of getting to. Technically, you're there. Yes. But that trust factor is, I guess, ephemeral to some degree yeah. to get to. Like, how? Do, like, what is, okay, trust fly. Yeah. Right? At what point do we become trustworthy? Yes. And there's that whole, the old maxim of no one ever got fired for buying IBM. It's like no one's ever gotten fired for buying AWS. And in some ways we're asking them to use something that's not AWS for projects, um, mm -hmm. which is a, a tough sell. Big risk. Yeah. That's their potential job on the line. Like a, that's a wrong choice on infrastructure. We had a Black Friday sale or we had a Father's Day sale or a Mother's Day sale or pick your day sale. And everything crashed. Or yeah. if it's a, if it's e-commerce, hey, they should be on Shopify, by the way. <laughs> then they wouldn't have that issue. Agreed. <laughs> uh, you know, but let's say you know it's something else. If you're not making those choices, then our database crashed and we lost data. Right. Right. To be more pertinent, to say Mongo HQ slash Compose. Yeah. I keep saying Mongo HQ because I grew up in the day when it was called Mongo HQ, and switching to Compose. It was only after IBM for me, knowing the Compose brand. So yeah, for me, I feel like they're two different companies. Maybe you can. You can agree or disagree with that. It, there was a distinct change there because it was when we went from just doing Mongo to doing all the databases, basically. It did teach me, so reason, part of the reason this company's named Fly is it's not associated, that I, someone told me at one point to pick an empty vessel for a name, like something that's a name that you can then fill up. Like Changelog is actually a pretty good example of this. You could do a lot if you ever decided to pivot away from podcasting. Like Changelog is a very, yeah. very good, no, like useful name that you can kind of do. I literally named a company Empty Vessel Inc. at one point because I didn't know what I was going to do exactly yet. Um, but yes, it, the MongoHQ name was helpful and it worked. The um, but we changed the name on purpose to do other databases. The funny story there is MongoDB at the time, the, the company that creates the Mongo database versus MongoHQ that was hosting this company's database and at one point making more money than MongoDB off of it, which was not always the best political situation. MongoDB at one point came to us and was like, look, we're not letting you people use Mongo in their names anymore. All these companies that are Mongo something, we're going to ask you to change the name or pay us a fee to license the name was maybe what they were after. I think they wanted to get us on a big partner program that would have funneled a lot of our revenue to them. And it wasn't like a direct threat, but the little bit of a threat there was, or you can't use the name of your company anymore. We'll be after you for that. Which is never a good place to be in, in a company, whether it's the threat or not. Like you just don't want to live in that world, right? Like it's not a good citizen world kind of thing. You're not being a good player. No, but we'd lucked out. And we changed the name of the company two months earlier. We just hadn't ripped off that Band-Aid and told everyone yet. And mm. so, like, within the next week, we'd actually announced the company name change to all of our customers, swap the domains and stuff over. Right. Which I don't think is the effect they were after, but it was, a, it was like, fortuitous for us at that mm -hmm. point to do that. And then, then MongoDB ended up buying MongoLab, which was kind of the primary competitor for hosted Mongo databases at the time. So it was all very interesting. I really respect the MongoDB company. I think some of the people that we dealt with there that are no longer there were kind of like flailing and trying to do anything they could to figure out how to make money off of the database. Yeah. They pretty much cracked that now, but I think that they're maybe better off that some of those folks don't work there anymore. Yeah. They've made a lot of, I suppose, wise choices over the years. I think even with their licensing process and stuff yeah. like that, they've really been 
leaders in many ways. I haven't followed the story well enough to speak to all the details, but my, I suppose, perspective of what I know is positive, not negative. Right. I think one of the very cool things about that company, and then one of the ways that um, I feel like I would like to be, is they're incredibly good at just continuing to work, like just staying alive and finding progress and finding wins. When I went from being a developer to like both managing people and trying to make decisions for a company, and I find the managing people to be a harder problem than the decision making for the company necessarily. I have a little bit of YOLO in me. And so I, I'm like <laughs> not risk averse in not healthy ways sometimes. Right. The hardest thing for me to learn there was that like at least half of everything I tried was just not going to have any effect whatsoever. Like as a developer, I'm used to like writing some code and something happens and maybe it's wrong and maybe it breaks, but there's an obvious path to fix that. Yeah. And managing people and building a company, like it was really hard when things weren't working that I, I was like, this seems like a good idea. I'm going to give it a try. And then nothing happened. There were like crickets or no response. I'm still trying to learn that that's okay. And I need to keep kind of almost like the boxing metaphor of like, I need to keep the feet moving. Right. Uh, is important whether I'm making progress or something's working or not has been something I've sort of learned from the MongoDB company is like, there's no reason that company should still be alive, but they didn't stop moving and it worked. Uh, it's a very cool, it's a, like, it's one of those few things with successful people that you can actually copy. I think a lot of times success advice is like, well, just be successful and then right. and then you'll be successful. <laughs> it's not actually helpful. My blanket advice is show up and do what needs done. Yeah. You know, to be successful, just show up consistently yep. and do what needs to be done Yeah, in whatever your pursuit is. And I think eventually to sprinkle some, some flavoring in there, like salt and pepper might be care. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Pretty much. Because it cares sort of the keyword. If you don't care, then you won't sort of pursue that, you know, rabbit hole that it ends nowhere with such vigor. Right. You'll just sort of like flounder out. Yeah, it's true. Mine is probably a variant of care, but it's always one of the things that helps me is um, there's like small little wins that you can look for that I can look for to say, hey, this is basically working. Right. Like mm -hmm. this thing has happened. Thus, I'm feeling good about this. And the flip side of that is when those things aren't happening, it's, it's pretty easy to be like, well, the things I said I was looking for did not happen. We need to do something else. Or what sometimes happens is like, I will know what's working when, when we get another big customer, for example, and then we don't get another big customer. We get like a hundred developers to sign up in a given week instead. And then I'll be like, oh, cool. That was uh that counts. Like, right. The thing that I was looking right. for didn't happen, but this other thing happened that sounds, that feels really good. So we'll, we'll kind of carry on with our lives. Yeah. You know, you got to be hyper aware of what's happening. And I always, it's kind of cliche to even say this, but I always say celebrate the wins, but it's really, I was thinking about this literally the other day driving. Cause I was just, I haven't be alone, which doesn't happen often. I've got a family. So usually there's always people with me. And so my solo time doesn't get to be very <laughs> contemplative. You know, I, I sort of, you know, don't get to do that as often as I want when I'm driving at least. And so in this case I was driving alone and I was thinking like, what does that mean to celebrate the wins. Right. I think it's celebrate the progress. And if you're someone who's read Atomic Habits or aspire to improve daily 1% in any way, I think you could, that's sort of what I mean by that. Like celebrate that small win, yeah. that small bit of progress, any sort of bit of progress, any sort of bit of forward motion to whatever it is that you aspire to do. If you can celebrate that every single day, you can sort of have gratitude to what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're going and and the, even like that sort of like changes your personal mood and maybe even your attitude. And that transpires into your team, into those you're closest to and then who they're closest to inside of your team. And so that's how you keep a healthy team is 
just consistently show up and celebrate that progress, those wins. Yes, it is a it's a weirdly unnatural thing to um, basically say we did good or you did good or that thing was right or this is like a thing to cheer about. It's like we're I don't know if it's a cultural American thing or a cultural like Midwest thing or uh, who knows, uh, but it, it's really. I like have to work to tell people that that was good. Right. Like it's, it's really easy to find fault and everybody's used to hearing kind of when they screwed up. Right. But it's an interestingly difficult problem to tell people that this was right. This was good. Yeah. And we've done good and we should be happy about this. I guess one of the problems is people are so used to looking for reasons that something that's like looking for even flaws is like, even the good things is like, well, we're not perfect yet. So we shouldn't care too much about like the little bit of, thing that just happened there. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's important to recognize that we're never perfect, particularly in a company. Like every company is, a, I don't know if your company is like this. I would bet it is because every company is like this. Every company is like a slow motion train wreck. There's no perfectly good, comfortable yeah. company to be a part of. They're all slow motion train wrecks in like different ways. Sure, yeah. That was actually interesting advice from Y Combinator is they tell every company is like, it doesn't matter how good the company looks from the outside. It is a disaster on the inside. So you should not feel bad when your company is a disaster. You need to make it better and not get not get caught up obsessing about that. Right. It helps to go to big companies and realize their train wreck. Not only is it a slow motion train wreck, it's like a much bigger train (laughs) that's that's getting wrecked. (laughs) Um, But like, it's too easy to be like, the company's not doing what I wanted to do. So I shouldn't be happy about this particular small win we just had, which is wrong, right? Like no company is perfect and it's still okay to be happy about the good stuff. The reason why I think that makes sense though, the celebrate the wins. And I will attribute a lot of this to, I'm like digging deep into atomic habits right now. So a lot of this is really from James clear and that book, but it's really like the goal is just a ramification of the process, right? And so if the wins and the progress is a result of the process, then you've got to celebrate those wins because those little things add up to big things. You know, if you only celebrated your goals, you know, then you're really missing out on the daily opportunity to be happy. Yeah. The daily opportunity to be proud of not in like a prideful way, but like proud of what you've done and what your team's done or share that admiration of what somebody's done because even if it wasn't the goal it still gets you to the goal right it's still progress towards that goal you know and i think that process like even fall in love with the process is a cliche that thing to say but i think after reading that book and hearing james Clear's story and atomic habits and if you can subscribe to that kind of idea which i totally agree like all too often do i fixate on a goal and forget about the process to get there and fail at getting to the goal right if you can fall in love and adhere to that process and celebrate those wins, I think you just, as a team, yep. I'm assuming a lot of this about you because I think that's, I've talked to you several times. I think that that's the way you think too, is like, you've got to love those, those daily wins. The way you frame that I think is really good. And it reminds me of a book I've never read, but I love the title of as a football coach. It's called the, the score will take care of itself. And the, it, the point yeah. is like you need to build the habits and do the process. I think he mentioned that book in that book. I think he, it was either that or in the, in the Blinkist version of it, they mentioned the, yeah. the book that the school will take care of itself. I think even the way you frame that it, differently than I was like, I was talking about celebrating goals in some ways, but like 
a lot of times you can't, you don't even have any control over goals. Zero. I mean, ultimately, like we're building a company, we want to make money. We actually have very little control over how much money we make directly. The best we can do is we can do like the first thing that will get us to making money. Yeah. And then build the habits that, that will kind of develop money down the road. Which actually reminds me, at Compose, when we, we floundered for a bit because we were focused a lot on revenue. And one of the problems I think that companies like Fly even have is when you start building a certain kind of product, there are companies with like $50,000 a month budgets that will pay for if you squint like something in that realm. And it's really tempting to go, oh, we're going to go get that money in and worry about how to actually kind of do this thing for them later. And at Compose, we, we built ourselves in this corner where there were a lot of money companies that would pay $50,000 a month to manage their Mongo database instance. And we didn't have the product to do that yet. So we were just basically consulting to make it work because like growing revenue is the biggest thing possible, which is true. Like we had to grow revenue to survive as a company and to get to another funding round or become profitable. But what happened is we stalled out at one point and I believe it probably doesn't matter. I think this could happen at any amount of dollars, right? You can find a company that's going to pay you half a million dollars a year and use up all your time servicing that company. But we got to, I think, $5 million of annual revenue and our brains went, hey, we're spending so much time on these customers that we're not like shipping the product for who we really care about. Mm. And we're not really building product features to automate all of these things that need to happen. And some of these people probably shouldn't be customers. What they're doing doesn't really fit our product and never will, or it'll be too long. And so we actually did a big shift and stopped that. We were finally like, look, we're only going to start caring about how many developers come and swipe their credit card and turn on a database for a while. Because it was like a, I can imagine how to control that. And get you motivated too. I mean, cause that's like something can happen yep. on the weekly, if not the daily that you can literally email those people and be like, thank you. What, what was it that made you choose compose? Exactly. What's your experience with it? Where can we improve? Can you give us feedback? Would you be a beta user of our next build? Whatever, whatever it is that fuels that motivation. Yeah. And so we turn to that and we turn to basically like like feature cadence is like how often are we shipping new features? Once you've recognized it's like we want to build things for a thousand people and not just one, is like how often are we building something that yeah. these thousand people can benefit from? It's much more fun. It was much more interesting because even on bad days, like I can go find someone and talk them into trying the product. Like it's not like I can't go get someone and like convince them to use the thing once very quickly. Yeah. And it was all about the process of like, cool, we need to build things for a thousand people. If we can focus on making sure we're doing that over time, over and over and over, then we can also work to get people to try it out. And then the rest of that will just work yeah. down the road. There's two principles that you said in there that I'll tell you who I learned them from. The first one is, what are you optimizing for? And I learned that from Saranya Bark. In a moment of her life of criticalness, a friend of hers said, because she was hemming and hawing over decisions. I can't remember the exact details. I'll paraphrase, so Saran, forgive me. But essentially, the person said to her, what are you optimizing for? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to achieve? And so from that, you have to really introspect and think like, really, what am I trying to do? Because then that lets you say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. Because all too often do we say yes, 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 and not no, 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 yes. yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, the other principle is velvet rope. And I learned that from this book called Book Solid. It's really a salesy kind of book, more for like sales process, how to get your calendar, right. how to sell everything you got. Book Solid is the, I think his name is Michael Rappaport, if I can recall correctly. And I've taken this principle beyond just that simply sales process to like, I've got a velvet rope between me and what I do inside of ChangeLog or me inside of what I do inside of Fly in your case. 
And that velvet rope is who belongs. That's what you said with, with Compose. Right. Who should be our customer? Devs with credit cards. They can give us feedback. Yeah. That's the velvet rope. If you're not that, you're not getting past this line. Right. So what am I optimizing for? And what is my velvet rope? Yep. You know, the other um, part of that, the what are you optimizing for? I've always thought was really interesting because I'm very prone to trying to prevent bad things from happening. I mean, bad things happen at companies. And I think it's really easy to overestimate how bad the effect is actually going to be. It took me a long time to start almost like I would call it like amateur cognitive behavioral therapy. It took me a long time to start kind of talking myself away from worrying. Yeah. And preventing them. Right. Because a one interesting problem about preventing catastrophes is you probably aren't going to prevent the actual catastrophe because your brain hasn't even wrapped your head around this being the thing yet. It's like a, the things that will go wrong are wildly unpredictable. You can predict some of them and hedge against some of them. But the thing that actually like really hurts, it's hard to think about ahead of time. But then what you said about what do we want to be? It's like nobody wants to be not a failure. That's not like a thing to strive for. Like it's not like we're building a company that won't fail. You can't itemize what that means to, to do or not do. Like, okay, we don't want to fail. Sure. Okay, cool. That's like a, a symptom. Exactly. Once I finally convinced myself, and this is still a rational thought that is not emotionally true for me at all times, but once I could rationalize, hey, the things that go wrong probably aren't going to be as bad as I think they are. I can't figure out what those are ahead of time anyway. And I care mostly about what goes right. It made it a lot easier to start making choices about what to spend time on and what to have other people spend time on. Yeah. And in fact, like how to tell people, I think I probably irritate people with several pithy phrases at all times, but I'm frequently repeating myself about like, we're not trying to prevent problems. It's not, you know, there's a lot of this, particularly when you're trying to sell a product, I think where you're like, well, if we don't do this, people won't buy the thing, which is assumes you've already gotten them interested enough to buy anyway. <laughs> There's like a, you're making a big leap there. Yeah. And so I think I'd probably drive everyone crazy by focusing on like, we need to get more people to use fly. We don't need to spend our cycles breaking down the reasons they don't use fly because we probably don't know what those are just yet. Like we still need to focus on that, the successful state here. Right. Well, you need that, you need that feedback loop and you can't get that feedback loop until you get even somewhat interested developers using fly. Right. I mean, you have to sort of attract a certain layer. And I suppose that's where you get a fuzzy velvet rope, so to speak. Yes. You know, the, the velvet rope in that case might be back to Compose days. Developers with credit cards willing to experiment. Yeah. Right? That know the future is possible. It isn't always on AWS. They might get fired for choosing something different, but give them an opportunity to try a new thing or make the dev experience easier to onboard, the, the on-ramp shorter, the documentation to try and on-ramp faster. Yep. That could be the optimization points versus just simply saying, don't die, or beat AWS, or be better than. You know, like those are just sort of wishy things, not so much like actual things you can say, okay, today, you know, senior engineer or individual contributor, go do these things. Like those are actionable, mission-minded things you can say, go make docs better to get somebody to use this in an experimental way faster. Yep. You know, put this on Twitter, write a blog post about this, or go on a podcast and share your thoughts on what it means to get your app and your database to users all over the world in these ways right. to experiment. Yeah. Even if it's just an experimentation, not just so much like move your whole entire infra right. to fly <laughs> from AWS. Like that's, exactly. that's the long shot, right? One fun thing I found to trick myself into making this okay, frequently my I'll be paranoid about, um, what's a good example of this? Do you know what um, SOC compliance is for like data centers? There's basically some compliance 
certifications you can get when you're hosting people's infrastructure. Sure. People ask for a lot. There's like SOC, there's GDPR, there's HIPAA. People ask for this variation of things a lot. SOC compliance is interesting for us because it's about a $40,000 problem that um, is pretty distracting and will take months to do. And I've always worried that people won't use us because we're not not yet SOC compliant. With that one, I finally was like, cool, What? how much money would it take for me to say, hey, we're SOC compliant now and just solve this problem when, when the right customer comes through? And so to your Velvet Road example, it's like you can totally bribe the bouncer and get around this thing uh, at fly. But like <laughs> it's an expensive thing. It's like I tell people, it's like if you're spend, planning to spend like ten dollars to $15,000 a month on fly services, we'll write this into a contract right. with you that we will be SOC compliant within you know three, 90 days or something like that. And it makes it really obvious <laughs> we, we finally need to solve this problem. The HIPAA one's interesting because we're thinking about solving HIPAA, uh, it's called a business association agreement. We're thinking about doing the what work we need to do to sign these BAAs with people, just anybody really, because I think that the way, and I'm, I'm really naive about this, so I'm just rephrasing something that I mostly understand here. So HIPAA compliance requires a company who's doing anything in various medical or medically adjacent fields to have a kind of a philosophy and set of processes in place that aren't really like technical requirements, but um, rules about how to share patient data and who has access to patient data and all of this stuff. For an infrastructure provider like us, what you do is you get what's called a business association agreement where the HIPAA compliant company has an agreement in place with us that says our processes are broadly compatible with what they need to do to be HIPAA compliant. And so what we'd like to do is just give everyone to be a, like give any developer on the platform, you know, the ability to build a HIPAA compliant application on top of fly. And that's again, hard and distracting, but that one's interesting because there are 10,000 developers out there who want to build medical software and probably have crappy infrastructure to do this. And so we might end up doing that one even before the SOC compliance it might cover both. I don't know specifically to get more of the 10,000 customers and not because not because things go wrong. It's like there's actually a customer base out there that would really value this, I think, and get us more customers. Anyway, but the price, I love setting a price that's like, what dollar amount do I need before I don't want to say no to this anymore? Because it just makes the answer so easy sometimes. Yeah, it does. I mean, because you can say, well, that's $40,000. Okay, we can ROI this this way. We can yep. eke it out that way. Okay, let's do it kind of thing. What's the big idea with Fly, though? Like, I know we've yes. talked a lot about your journey and in and around some of the things we've teased out to some degree what you're doing with Fly. But what's the big idea with Fly? So we have a few kind of beliefs about the future that are important to us. Uh, one of the beliefs is that basically all applications should run close to people using them. If you squint at the types of code people run, there's the kind that uh, need to be nearby need to or, or benefit greatly from being very close to the user. And then there's stuff that runs kind of in the background that you should probably put in like Greenland where power and cooling are cheap and because they don't have to worry about that. And so our general belief is that in the future, everything a developer builds that a user uses will run close to that user. And the reason for this is speed and it's the ability to ship more interesting features. If you can get an application within 40 milliseconds of someone it seems like it's on their local device. And so you can start building highly interactive, really interesting stuff um, doing that. And we know this because like big tech companies do exactly this. Shopify has infrastructure to get all of the Shopify stores within 40 milliseconds of their users. Facebook has data centers within 40 milliseconds of all their users. Google does this as well. So we're pretty confident that that's a thing that'll be true in the future. And we think one of the reasons it's not happened yet is because the infrastructure doesn't exist to make it possible 
for what I would call boring applications. And so if you take your boring standard Rails application that reads from a database, it's actually historically been difficult to run that close to people. And people are kind of left, either they don't do anything to account for this, which is pretty common. They'll just ship it to Virginia or whatever and let everyone use it and it'd be slow for their users. Or they um, they start like kind of shoehorning a CDN on top of it to make certain things faster. And so our kind of big immediate goal is to build infrastructure so people can ship the apps they're already building and run them close to people. And I keep referencing boring Rails apps. Like the goal has been to get a boring Rails app. And we did that. And I think the user experience is not as good as we want it to be, but it's vaguely possible now. So we're actually attracting users who know that they want to do this. So we have, we're attracting developers who are like, yeah, obviously I'd want to run my cl- app close to users. But I think the next step for us is make us actually just the default for application deployment, where it's not like you have to think you want to run close to people. It's that it just works. Right. It's like, okay, why wouldn't we? Of course, yes. Let's just run it on fly and we get that for free. Yeah. It's like, no, this is just how we deploy applications. Right. Well, we're a, I would say we're a global company, you know, which is sort of odd. Even like I meet friends that don't have a clue about what I do. And right. they're always surprised to know that we have listeners in Japan or South, South America or New Zealand or basically everywhere. And so, you know, thankfully you're sort of describing to some degree, we don't have a boring Rails app. We have a yes. really cool <laughs> Elixir app. <laughs> Just kidding, but but Elixir is very you know, and Phoenix is very similar. Like Jazia Valem, a lot of the fun things that were happening in the Ruby world, you wanted to kind of transplant into the Elixir world. So there's a lot of parallels to the Elixir Phoenix Ruby Rails stories. Yes, and so that's why I say really cool. But we, you know, we have a three node Kubernetes cluster, and we have Fastly as a CDN. I know earlier on you you knocked Fastly. At, I think. Back in the day, not current Fastly, so yes. we'll let that one slide. But we do have Fastly as our CDN in front of everything. And we recently put Fastly in front of literally everything, not just our MP3s, to get that global, you know, never down, super fast response time when we're caching. Yes. We're kind of like your prime candidate, so to speak, right? We're not taking our application everywhere. We have it hosted in one place. I think it might be somewhere here in the U.S., our clusters, for example. We might be in multiple data centers, but they're definitely here in the U.S., our database is not everywhere. It's a Postgres database uh, hosted on on Linode inside of Kubernetes. And we simply just CDN with Fastly and they deal with the global problem, essentially. Yes. Well, A, since you're doing podcasts, it makes like CDNs are perfect for media files, right? Like you obviously would use a CDN. Right. And we only ever used it for the MP3s for the longest time. Like we only did CDN just for the MP3 and some of our assets, not our full like every DNS query did not land at fast. They landed at Linode first and would, yep. you know, the CDN, the things that we needed to like assets and MP3s and stuff. Yeah. Our, our basic belief here is if you'd had infrastructure that um, just worked and worked in a way that was economic, right? Like not just millions of dollars, just putting your Elixir app everywhere would have been a better solution than putting Fastly in front of an Elixir app in one location. Fastly is actually really good. Like the CDNs are actually really good for a narrow set of problems. And putting it in front of certain apps, if you want to do that work, makes a lot of sense. I keep mentioning that some things feel really wrong to me. And the idea of putting a layer in front of my app because my app is not fast enough seems like a really, if we like just look at that in isolation, it seems strange. Like, why would we add the complexity of a CDN if we could just make the app fast enough instead? Right. And that was our philosophy originally. It was like, we thought that uh, this is pretty fast in front of everything. And we're kind of getting to the minutia of our architecture, which I cannot cover as well as Gerhard or Jared can. So my words are paraphrases and proxies, so to speak, for what smarter people could say about our infrastructure. But 
we thought, you know, because Elixir is fast. Phoenix is fast. Super fast response times. Yep. Highly concurrent, can deal with a lot of users. So we thought, hey, this is a great choice. Yep. Uh, let's just put that out there. But that doesn't account for latency. Right. It's like you still have the speed of light. <laughs> you know, to respond. You still have to get to the thing to get the response time. So that could be a naive point we, we you know, came up against. So we made a wise choice on tech, but still yet just that tech in one place didn't give us the full prospect of what that tech can offer in terms of response time to a user. You have to get to the thing to respond first and then get it back to you. So you still have that pipeline between the user and the data center that you're, you know, where the application lives. Yep. So, you know, call that, call that short-sighted, so to speak, but nonetheless, you know, it's not short-sighted. It's an, I, um, I heard an entirely made up statistic. I don't know if this is true or not, but I think it sounds correct and I like it, but I heard that something like 0.5% of AWS customers run in more than one region. It's an impossible problem to solve, which is why we have things like CDNs. Okay. And so our ultimate goal here is to make it to where you would ship an Elixir app and not have to worry about it. It would just suddenly become a thing that runs close to people and you don't really have to spend cycles on it. You don't have to put a CDN in front of it. You don't have to worry about caching pages. For what you're doing, a CDN is actually really good because I don't think you have a lot of per user dynamic content. There's probably not a lot of places where people would log in and see something very different than the other people. But like if you wanted to add something like chat to the sidebar of your podcast, or even if you went bonkers and did like a live streaming event at some point, or there's a lot of features that you kind of get if you can just keep working with your app and bypass the CDN. That's actually the genesis of this whole company. When I worked on Ars Technica back in the ad crunch of one of the ad crunches. It seems like the ad market's fallen through the floor like five or six times in the last 20 years. Sure. Several ad crunches. Yes. I think it was like 2006. We, the ad market just collapsed and we launched a paid subscriber program because it was like, this is a way we might be able to make money. And the paid subscribers actually kept ours afloat for several years. It's like one of the earlier ones. I thought it was really interesting. The infuriating thing about this is we went from publishing things that were like, we put it up once and a million people were seeing it to now we have paid subscribers. We'd like to build a dynamic app experience for that that does a lot for them, uh, including like if you imagine the types of features you'd want to give to paid subscribers, a lot of them are very personalized. Yeah, like a for you tab yeah. kind of thing, which is like part of the course for any application that delivers dynamic content these days. Like a for you tab is yes. uh, a requirement. Exactly. We even had the forums running and it's like, cool, we could actually like build this community into the application somehow, right? Like one of the things that we learned paid subscribers like is they like being recognized as paid subscribers to their peers. There's like a little bit of a status thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of Velvet Rope, right? A little starting to the name or VIP. Yeah. And we couldn't build those features because there was no like... I think now we could do the work for it, but at the time it was like, I'm able to build an app to run on these servers. I'm able to put things on a CDN, but I'm not able to build features into the app and also have them be fast for people. It was just not a possible thing to do. So in a lot of ways, like we hit this problem relatively early. Fastly and Cloudflare have some things that you can, I think, write, you can basically like write extra code to make this stuff work. You can basically program their, their CDNs to an extent at this point, which I think would have helped for someone like ours because it was that important to us. But again, I think if you're shipping an internal business application, suddenly you have a bunch of people using it from their houses. Uh, it's actually valuable to be running your internal business stuff close to, to your users as well. So one of our other basic philosophies is like AWS and modern clouds are incredibly complicated and it's not necessary. Like you could. It is. <laughs> right. 
you could kind of ship all these features. I mean, we have we have two brands working with us. You're one of them. A good friend of ours, Asa Maslam, with what he is doing around micro, just simply combating the complexity of AWS. Both a good thing for Amazon and a bad thing for them, because eventually you both will win or, you know, one of you will win, hopefully both, in terms of like pulling some of that market share away because of that complexity. Yeah, I think long, long term, like if we do what we want, I think we'll become an interesting public cloud option where you don't have to hire people to run your Kubernetes cluster to use it. Basically, like most of these things will just work for people who who are writing the software. Right. I think that that's probably a great simplification. I think we've gotten this world we have where people build their CRUD-based startup CRUD in the sense of create, read, update, delete, like just form-based startup and then hire a Kubernetes person to build a Kubernetes cluster for them just seems really bonkers to me. It's an app and a database. It's like the same exact architecture that every other app and database uses. Uh, anyway, but like Kubernetes makes a ton of sense and there's not a lot of great tooling. Like Heroku is always very expensive and the Heroku experience didn't exist on cheaper alternatives for a long time. Coming up, Kurt shares the sweet spot for Fly for full stack and backend applications, his experience with fundraising and barbecue, because we both have opinions on cooking wings. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Snowplow Analytics. Snowplow is the behavioral data management platform for teams. Maximize the value of your behavioral data using Snowplow Insights, a managed data platform that's built on leading open source tech that's leveraged by tens of thousands of users. Capture and process high quality behavioral data from all your platforms and products and deliver that data to your cloud destination of choice. When marketing needs to make data informed decisions, when product needs next level understanding, when analytics needs rich and accurate behavioral data, Snowplow is the solution for data teams who want to manage the collection, processing, and warehousing of data across all their platforms and products. Get started and experience Snowplow data for yourself at snowplowanalytics.com. Again, snowplowanalytics.com. I want to talk about fundraising because I know you did some of that stuff. If we can talk about it, you can give me a head nod if no. <laughs> I, I do want to touch a little bit on barbecue because that's kind of fun. But before we do that, can you sort of maybe give a, a call to action to developers listening to this? Like, what's a sweet spot for Fly? What's a good invitation, so to speak, to the audience? I think if you're building a full stack or back end application, you should look at Fly for deploying it for two reasons. One is basically the power of a good segment of something like AWS for similar pricing. So you're not really paying a premium to get the developer experience. When you ship an app on Fly and you ship a database on Fly, they land on their own same private network. They talk over a private network like they should. There's no configuration required on your part. But then you're like, database won't get owned by people scraping the internet and finding public ports open. Just by default, because it's it's sort of an implementation of how you should ship most applications. And so our goal is for Fly launch the, we have a CLI you install and then you run Fly launch. Our goal is to take any app you happen to be working on in your working directory and get it up and deployed within just a few minutes. One little cheat when we do this is we actually run the app closest to you. So this is a this is like a little bit of a 
again, our premise is if you run close to people, things seem faster. We've actually gotten compliments from people who are like, I'm amazed at how fast this is. All because of what we do is we default to the city that's nearest to them to deploy their application, which I love. It's like the first taste of this. And then what I think is really interesting once, like, again, we're trying to capture developers because it's like a great place to deploy apps. But what happens, I think, is this is infrastructure you want to grow. You're probably never going to need to leave Fly for something like complicated like AWS because we're kind of giving a similar set of features. And we also give you a path to make this stuff truly fast. So almost everyone who's building an app for a U.S.-based audience has customers in Sydney. It's like you kind of have to cover the English-speaking world. Yeah. And so we give you basically the tools you need to take this application and also run it in Sydney with no architecture code changes, just on top of Postgres, just the way you're used to. So you should check out our blog, too, if you like technical stuff. It's We write some pretty deep technical articles about how we've done these things. That's uh, fly.io slash blog, right? Yeah. And you mentioned Postgres there, too. So that was a recent blog post as well about uh, you now have Postgres in place distributed. So you want to, I guess, maybe speak to what that means, why Postgres first, you know, maybe why, is that a big deal for you? I suppose it is. Is that that the first database you've had? Because you went from apps everywhere to apps and databases with that blog post, right? Uh, Yes, it is not the first database we've tried. It's the right database, I think. One of the things we've learned about what we're doing, and I think is something that Cloudflare and Fastly are also learning is that we probably can't tell people how to build applications. The best we can do is be compatible with the applications they're comfortable building. And so we, when we finally settled on Postgres, it was because most developers are comfortable with the idea of Postgres and probably use it. And even if they don't, it's not like a, a new thing to learn. It's like a portable skill. If you build an app on Postgres, you're not stuck on our infrastructure. You can put it pretty much anywhere. There's a whole history here of how we tried to do data, but what we did is we built a generic, like very vanilla Postgres offering. And then we figured out how to run this thing across the world. So what happens when you deploy a Postgres on fly is you then deploy read replicas in the cities where your, where your customers happen to be. As an example, we have a bookstore using us that has a bunch of customers in the US and a bunch of customers in Europe. And what they do is they run their Postgres database in New Jersey or in New York on fly. And then they run a read replica in Amsterdam and a read replica in Spain. And our plumbing allows them to basically do this without changing their application. So what happens when requests come into Spain is they use the read replica to kind of handle the request if they can. If a request needs to perform a write, we actually route the entire request back to where their primary database is and it does the writes there and it's all very transparent to the users and the developers. Yeah, very cool. A lot of fun stuff happening in that space. I know we've had some conversations that's to say behind the scenes about fundraising. I'm imagining you've done this a couple of times, not just simply the most recent time here, but as a CEO, I think from my notes, you can correct me if I'm wrong for at least a decade now, but you said half of Mongo HQ slash composes timeframe was you as a CEO. So I think it may be more like yeah, I think seven years. Pretty accurate. <laughs> Dang. You're trying to do some basic math here. Okay. So let's just call it seven years. Would you say seven years is accurate? Yes. So having been CEO for seven years, how many times have you fundraised? What's been the process for you? Is it fun? Do you like it? Well, the do's and don'ts, you know, we're, show us your scars. What's, <laughs> no, it, take us into the world of what you've dealt with to to get this fuel, this, this uh, resource that's necessary, the financial resource to build companies. Fundraising is not fun. It's my least favorite activity. It's a real grind. So I've successfully fundraised four times now. There's been at least three attempts where I started going out and talking to investors and then ended up not raising any money. I'm pretty prone to 
punting and just being like, now's not the right time. I'm not going to spend more time on this. Partially because I hate it. Like, it's a really easy choice to be like, I'm just going to go back to the things that are more fun. Right. Oh, no, there's more times. I just I, there's one I've completely repressed from my memory. <laughs> <laughs> it varies depending on stage. And so part of the reason why I talk about Y Combinator is I think if you're building something new and decide you want to raise kind of the first round of funding for it, Y Combinator makes that much simpler in the sense that it gives you some structure for doing this and gets you introduced to this network of people who like to put money into things that you otherwise might have a difficult time of meeting. Would you say it's the hard, easy button? Yes. I mean, it makes sense. I've raised money five times ever. There's no experts at fundraising because nobody gets to do it. It's not like a thing I do four times a year. It's a thing I do when I need to that I have to relearn each time. And so the nice thing about Y Combinator with the first round of funding is that they make it I'm really comfortable with their process. I don't have to just flounder around, figure things out. I can basically just follow the instructions. Fundraising by numbers. Yeah. It's like a board game almost. It's like, here's a thing with rules that you follow. Yeah, exactly. Roll the dice. Go here. Yep. Yeah. Learn this lesson. Go back two steps. Redo your slide deck. Put more slides in. pull, Pull less slides. Exactly. Pull more slides out. You know, speak less. Demo more. Right. Demo less. Speak more. They help you simplify. I think the hardest part about pitching companies is keeping the pitch simple. I think that for the seed round, I don't dislike that as much as the other rounds. The nice thing about the first, like an early round of funding like that is you're kind of almost like pitching a what if, which took me some getting used to. I'm usually hedging on comments I make or I'm very prone to being like, we're going to do this, but it may not work, right? Like I'll tell people. And investors are used to this language of like, they're used to looking at things through the lens of like, we only care what happens if it works. Like we don't care about the possible failures because I think like seven out of 10 of their investments are just going to fail and they've internalized that. But at that seed round, it's sort of fun to tell the story. It's like, we're going to do this and it's going to get big. And here's how it's going to get big. I had to learn to be confident about how it's going to get big and again, not hedge every moment. But it is sort of fun because they make very quick decisions. A lot of times that they'll make decisions while you're talking to them in that initial meeting. And you'll get the money that week. And you can talk to a bunch of different people. The later rounds are less fun because it's more institutionalized. And you end up, the process for those, and I've always really struggled for this. I think I have a better time convincing an individual than a group. But the process for the later rounds is you talk to a partner at a firm. You get them excited. And then they sort of advocate for you to the rest of the firm. And then you have to go meet the rest of the partners and convince kind of this entire group that this is a place, one of the one of the fewer investors investments are going to make this year. I feel like very poor success with partner to partner meeting. I don't think it's worked for me as well as it seems like it should have. And I don't know exactly why that is. Yeah, I don't I don't like fundraising at all. I do like building a pitch in some ways. I do like coming up with like, here's how this company would get big. I think that's really helpful and valuable. This last time around, I wrote basically a memo that was like, here's here's where we're at, here's what's going to happen, and here's why, and here's why like the money is actually going to help do this. And I thought that was a really useful exercise for us, at least, that, um, mm. again, it gets me out of like, we have a bug, or we have an angry user, or we have a thing that's not, that's delayed, that usually is what I'm thinking about. Can you speak to any details around your most recent round, or is that off the books? So we have a term sheet that should close any day now. So we did raise an A round for Fly, I mean, the money's not in the bank yet. So like the way these things go is that once a term sheet's signed, like other than fraud or a meteor, like it's probably a done deal, but there's still a chance. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> meteor. <laughs> <laughs> With a reputable VC, um, they, they have their reputations to worry about. But like, so I would call it like 
we've 98% raised money, but the money is not there yet. So we're being careful to not um, gotcha. really make a big deal out of, it, or even do like a lot of spending in anticipation of this. We specifically raise money to start showing fly to various, we talked about developer communities earlier to start showing fly to various developer communities. We've had a lot of success yeah. with the Elixir and Phoenix community. And we think we can replicate that with Rails and Laravel and Django and Node and even like Shopify devs. There's a lot of interesting communities to go look out, look at as, as long as we can sort of, A, build something that's useful for them, which we're really close to for most of these and just need to do sort of last mile work. But then B, actually like advocate for ourselves within the communities. So that's primarily why we raise money. Yeah. Also because servers are expensive. That's the other part. That's an interesting problem too. I mean, you're obviously a developer, so speaking to other developers about why Fly might make sense for them for their future, especially to say Ruby and Rails, Elixir Phoenix is a very sweet spot because they're pretty yep. similar in their stories. Not exactly similar in technology, but there's a lot of crossover even syntax-wise. Almost every app that has a database needs the same infrastructure, and it's not not a lot of variance there. Yeah. I love selling things to developers, though, because they're very. it's a very unforgiving group, and I'm like this too. I hate being sold to. I don't want to yeah. call people on the phone. I don't want to do that stuff. And so actually selling to them is a much more, um, the process appeals to me because it seems a lot more transparent and less sketchy. Like getting a developer to use a product means that there's no BS. You can't get away with it for very long. <laughs> Precisely. I can concur. I also love selling to developers, not because they're easier, hard or whatever. Like I just like solving their problems. And I think there's just so much minutiae out there in terms of solutions that when I said earlier about what we do here at ChangeLog, like, for me, it's just like we get to put that velvet rope up. Right. Right. With the different brands you work with, different partners. And we help developers kind of whittle down that list by being that first line of defense. Right. Sure, it's an advertisement. Yes, it is an advertisement. They are paying us to do that advertisement. But before that even happened, we chose to work with them because of our desire to whittle that list down for developers to give them Right. Actionable choices we we also believe in. Yep. Not just because they give us money, because we say no to people who just want to give us money. We do not like transactional relationships at all. And we frown upon them and flat out <laughs> yeah. deny them. Our velvet rope is we want to work with them. And then they also want to give us money. And there's a relationship there. and There's a partnership opportunity there. Like that to me is what I love most about selling to developers is helping them choose tools that are worth choosing. And there may be two or three or four usually two or three, at least two different brands to choose from in that space of solution. And it's up to them right. to choose which one fits them. That's not our choice. We help them by selecting the right brands to work with, brands we can believe in, et cetera. I, to some degree, hate the word brands, but that's the easiest way to describe companies, you know, companies out there solving problems. Yeah. And for us, what I think is so interesting about what we're trying to do is we think we've built something valuable for kind of devs building with a database. Yeah. Basically, what we have to do now is go find people in these communities. And then first order of business is to convince people who are kind of active in these communities and to come work for us, right? It's like, look, we've built this thing. This is really important yeah. to this community. Come help us work on it for this community. I mean, I think it's probably not fair to call sales a lot of convincing people to give you money, even if they may not want to. Like, it's not the fair way of, of calling sales right. that. 100% not a fair way. Yeah. It's way farther on the spectrum of like, it's a, like almost an equal partnership between us and a particular developer. Like we actually have to build something that's valuable for them and then they actually have to want it or the money never happens. Right. Maybe it's like 
0% coercive. Like I think a lot of sales a little bit coercive, even if it's like 2%. A lot of it is like following up and reminding people. And I think you have to be influential. I think you do have to, you know, similar to a leader, you have to cast a vision. You have to inspire people to change. You have to inspire people to take that first step. And I think it's the same thing in sales. You have to be influential. I don't think you have to be coercive. I think you have to say, I want to help you. This is how I can help you. Yep. Can I help you? Yep. And if, if the answer is yes, here's what the relationship is in terms of exchange. I give you this, you give me that. And in some cases, it's straight up monetary. In some cases, it's bartering. But it's really, yep. I can help you. I want to help you. Can I help you? I have a hard time telling people no to their face. And like salespeople are really likable. It's really hard for me to like disappoint someone that I'm talking to. Right. I'm super <laughs> open. You know, I'm super like transparent when it comes to that kind of stuff. Like I will, I have a hard time also saying no, but I will tell them why I'm saying no. Yeah. I do sales. And so I can empathize with their salesmanship or salespersonship. Right. I'll give them critical advice. Like not like criticizing their sales process, but like, here's why I'm saying no for now. Yep. And if you want to get the deal, here's what you can go away and do and come back and have another opportunity. <laughs> it's actually funny because I think it's one of the things I'm less comfortable with with investors too. A lot of the actual sale is the relationship and kind of the trust of the relationship. And I think part of what I'm drawn to building for people is, is a lot more product focused, like the relationship with the product and trust in the product and like not a person involved is like a fun thing for me to work mm -hmm. on because it's the fun thing for me to buy. Like I like Costco and if I buy a car, I want to go to CarMax because I just, it's like a buy it now price, right? Like it's a, there's just no, right. no relationship developing there. <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure what that says about me, but that's, a, that's part of why I like selling the devs. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the relationship is yeah. for me at least is key. It comes back to, I'm glad we got that point out, the velvet rope and optimizing. Like, what am I optimizing for? I'm optimizing for not deals. I'm optimizing for deals that can be long-term. Yes. Deals that can be long-term are built on valuable relationships, valuable exchanges in that relationship. And so if that's what I'm optimizing for, then my velvet rope says anybody who does not fit that bill or any brands or any businesses, dev tools, services, et cetera, if they don't fit that mold, then it's a... To use uh, Derek Siffer's way, it's a heck no, or a heck yes, or a, I guess I said that backwards, <laughs> yes, actually. Right. It's a heck yes. Yep. Because it's either a heck yes or it's a no. There's not a maybe or an in-between. I'm either excited about it and it fits or it doesn't. I need to find a place like that that does car selling. That's like, no, we're not going to sell a car to you. <laughs> anyway, I uh, really enjoy buying cars. It's probably stupid. I don't like selling them and I don't like owning them as much. But like right now we need a new minivan. This is the level of car I'm buying. It's not like a car max is probably perfect then. I'm not the best person to give car buying advice either. I do not like the process. And I'm a Ford dude. I, I've only bought Fords in the last 10 years of my life. So fortunately, Ford is crushing it now. So it's going to be easy to remain a Ford dude, I think. I think so. Yeah. I know we want to talk about barbecue. I think we talked about barbecue before. I think if I recall correctly, wings is your favorite thing to make. Recently, also my favorite thing to make. I have a, a big green egg. I love to cook them at like 325, 350. Yep. 350 is the high side. You know, if it's 325, that's a sweet spot for me. Uh, about 30 to 40 minutes. I kind of like mine tender, yep. moist. You know, I do dry rubs. What's your process? I'm a lazy barbecue, so I have an electric smoker, which is great because I can turn it on and feed it wood chips and it just works for as long as I need to. Right. Um, 
Wings is the thing I do most often. My favorite things to smoke ever have been pulled pork. And then um, I smoked trout once and it blew my mind because I took my daughter to one of these trout farms and just let her catch whatever she wanted, not realizing how much you pay a trout farm by the pound when you take all these fish with you. Yeah. And so I ended up with too much trout. I was like, I guess I'll just smoke it and freeze it. And it like it was freaking amazing. Really? It, yeah, it was really good. And freezing it was awesome because you could just pull it out of the freezer and basically thaw it and microwave it. And it tasted almost like it was freshly smoked. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, I, sh- I probably should do trout again. But wings are my thing. I'm experimenting actually today because I've I love smoked wings, but I also like incredibly crispy skin. I have a rub. I've, I found a, a technique for baking wings in the oven that I'm trying to adapt where you basically dry the wings out with baking powder on them in the refrigerator overnight mm-hmm. and then cook them low and then relatively high in the oven. So what I'm going to try and do is I did the rub. I'm not going to dry them out with baking powder. I'm not going to smoke them like I normally do. And then I'm going to move them to the oven at like 450 for like five minutes to see if I can get the skin to crisp up. That crispiness, yeah. Smoked wings with crispy skin seems like the best thing ever to me. And I've never managed to pull it off. So it's a little bit of a challenge. So that's why I like my green my green egg recipe because my method gives me that world without having to move it. Yep. I can do 325 for 30, 40 minutes and I get both of those in that process. Now, I could pull them at like 25 minutes or basically at 30 minutes. I could tempt them and reel the minutia right. for a finest <laughs> episode. But I think there's a lot of people listening to these that smoke meat. <laughs> believe it or not, we've had a lot of feedback about backstage having some barbecue-ness in it. So they want to hear us talk about barbecue. So that's why I threw this in here yeah. is a little taste of what could be. To do like maybe a founder's talk with a barbecue flavor into it. Yeah. Pun intended. But you know, I could pull them, you know, early essentially, pull them out and just open up the vents on the green egg and let it get to like four or five hundred, like a bake temperature. Yeah. You know, and put them back in for five minutes and get that bake. So I could I haven't tried that. I could try that, but I get mostly there what you're talking about, just at 325-ish. Nice. For 30 to 40 minutes. And it's a good crispy. I don't have a direct overheat. I have that deflector in there. All that good stuff. So it's indirect, actual, you know, lump charcoal yep. process. And it's essentially smoking in that dome. So it's a smoky slash indirect. That's why I love the green egg. It's really just so versatile. So yeah. I've just turned to that thing more often than anything, aside from a traditional real smoker. Yep. I have a Traeger. I have a gas grill. I basically never use those things. I only really ever use my green egg. The thing that got me to the smoker is when I do wings, I do like 20 pounds at a time for the whole block. That's a lot of wings. Yeah. I couldn't put 20 pounds of wings on mine. That's way too much. Yeah. I need a smoker for in that case or something different. So I've got the one that looks like the little mini fridge. It's got Bluetooth on it so I can see it on my phone, but it has four racks so I can do a ton of wings in there. Yes. All at one shot. Or I can even do, I think I did two turkeys in it once. I bet you can time it since you have multiple racks. If you can time it where you put one rack in and then sort of tier them. And you sort of put it in and then where you can pull them out in stages yeah. and pull them to a direct fire kind of thing to sort of get that last 10 minutes yeah. of crispy. Maybe you could smoke them most of the way, almost like a reverse sear yeah. for a steak. You know, and if you could tear your racks where you put them in, where you can pull one out at a time and have that last five minutes for each. If you time the insertion into the smoker and then the exertion into, say, you know, something direct, that could give you sort of tiered. 20 pound wings on the fly, so to speak. Right. No, no roll. <laughs> on the fly. Additional pun intended. <laughs> Boom, we got them. Yeah, the baking powder is interesting because there's apparently, anyway, yeah. this is currently my wing excursion. So I'll let you know how it goes next time. How's that sound? Please do. Yeah, follow up with me and we'll share something somehow, maybe on Twitter or something like that. If you tweet it, I'll retweet it. Okay. And we'll do it from the Changelog account as well. Let's end with something new on the horizon. There's a lot of ways you can answer this question, but like, what's new? 
brand new, never told before about your future, Fly's future, whatever, or what's lesser known that you can share more details about here at the close? I think the interesting new things are, A, we're going to start hiring a little more like crazy to follow the fundraiser talk. So basically, a lot of developers think Fly's is an interesting thing to work on. So you should look out for full stack developer job posts and even like the dev advocate job posts for different communities because it's a, I think it's a cool job and some people tend to agree. So that's a, I'm not sure I've told anyone that yet. The product things that are interesting are we're launching more regions. One of the things we've discovered is there's these communities of devs in lots of cities that don't have great infrastructure for them. So like Sao Paulo, Brazil will be available soon. Chennai, India, also available soon. Both have like hot developer communities and and not a great place to deploy their apps. And both of those groups of people run apps that, again, have global audiences. We might have like South Korea and Osaka and other interesting countries and cities in the next year. But the, the, the for sure's are Sao Paulo and Chennai. And then Postgres is the default, I think, and the mod, but the model we came up with is actually generally applicable. So you can run Mongo, you can run MySQL, you can run SQLite in a similar way. Wow. There's a fair number more databases coming over the next year. SQLite, a production database. SQLite's freaking amazing. Yeah. There's a guy creating a tool called um, um, Lightstream for SQLite that would be worth having on a podcast sometime. Ben Johnson. Yeah, that's him. We've talked to Ben Johnson on the changelog before about that. We actually talked about his choice to be open, but not open to contributions. Yes. But we also obviously talked about Lightstream and SQLite. Cool. We're actually having Richard Hit back on the changelog here soon. I think within a few weeks, I can check the calendar real quick. I think it's like real soon. We had Richard Hip on the changelog in the 200s, the early 200s. Yeah, we're recording with Richard Hip on July 28th. So usually it's a week cycle. So if you're listening to this, recording July 28th, if you're listening to this some, sometime in the future, it should already be out if you're listening to it in the near future. And it's before July 28th, maybe the first week of August, we'll have that show shipped. But uh, Dr. Richard Hip is super cool. We love SQLite. And even Ben Johnson with Lightstream, what he did there, I think he really he really helped SQLite be more production-y, I suppose, with yeah. having that sort of real-time backup. I mean, I'm, I can't describe the product fully, but it's essentially like it gives you a production version of SQLite because it's constantly being backed up yep. with SQLite APIs behind it that's like just, you know, rock solid. And I think it's only S3 for now, but I think maybe he's opened it up to other other object stores too. I, I could be wrong. But. I think he has a, a fair number more now, but the cool thing, the way we're trying to use it is for read replicas. So you can basically, if you can get SQLite oh, yeah. streaming its changes somewhere, you can also create read-only replicas. Rather than a backup, it, oh, that's smart. Even like, you know, the ghost blog yeah. works incredibly well with SQLite and read replicas on fly if you do the right kind of elbow grease at the moment. But we want like a, a better story for SQLite so incredibly powerful and simple. It's like the right yeah. kind of simple. So it's very exciting for me and hopefully at least 50 other people. <laughs> so you mentioned these are horizon things. Is there a place on the fly website they can go to, the listeners can go to to sort of like, is this on the blog yet? Is this just simply here on the podcast so far? Where is it on Twitter? Where have you sort of talked about some of these details? So we haven't talked about much. We have a community discourse that we run at community.fly.io where we tend to talk about things very early. We end up putting everything on the blog or on Twitter after that. But the community is a, a, a nice place to tease people or at least get even get like early users. So I think the first time we talked about Postgres on the community was in January. And we had people trying it out from the community in February wow. and then finally officially shipped it last week. Yeah, launched in June. So that's cool. Yeah. 
that's a good time frame. Tease in January, February, launch in June. Yep. So we'll probably do that for other databases and things. Well, Kurt, I, I, I like you as a person. I like what you're doing as a business. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing your story here on the show. Really, I do. I, I, I love the times we get a chance to talk. And I'm glad this one was recorded so we could put it out there for others yeah. to listen to, too, because we've had some conversations that were good enough to be a podcast, but just were just between you and I. Yeah. So I'm glad we recorded one that shared more of your story and some of the details about the way you think and the way you're building your business and, you know, your likes or dislikes of fundraising, sales process, selling developers <laughs> and yeah. what the future is for your company. I think this is just super cool. So good. Really appreciate what you're doing. That's great. I've enjoyed it. It's fun to talk to you all. And I love your podcasts as well. I think that I love high quality podcasts. So it's great that you all are doing more of them now. Yeah. We aim to please. <laughs> Us too. <laughs> no wonder it's fun. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, Kurt, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Yep. Thank you. All right. That's it for this episode of Founders Talk. Thanks for tuning in. Up next week, I'm talking with Quinn Slack, CEO of Sourcegraph, hot on the heels of their unicorn status Series D funding round led by Andreessen Horowitz at a $2.625 billion valuation. Also on deck is Guillermo Rauch, founder and CEO of Vercel. We talk about building a platform that's making the web faster and lets front-end teams do their best work. It's all about develop, preview, ship. Of course, thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. And thank you to you in advance. If you love this show, do us a favor. Word of mouth is by far the best way for us to grow our shows. Tell a friend. We'd love to have them as a listener. All right, that's it for this week. We'll see you next time.